All right, our next speaker tonight uh, is Pastor Tim James. Glad to have Debbie came with Tim. And uh, they have been friends of ours for two or three years. And uh, uh, we go back a long ways. And we're thankful to God for their friendship. And uh, Tim, faithful servant of the Lord, Sequoia Baptist Church in Cherokee, North Carolina, since, what, 1978? You went down there. And... uh, we're glad to have you, Tim. You come preach the gospel of Christ to us. Well, it's a delight to be back up here among all y'all pretty Michiganders. I always look forward to this time of year. See Jim and Nancy. To see y'all. Tell you how much I appreciate you. How kind and merciful and generous you've been to me over the years, and I certainly do appreciate it. I told Gary I was going to preach a legalistic message tonight. Thought I would. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter seven. Verse 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. I can see by some of your faces you're already saying, I wish you'd shut up. Several times over the years, after preaching the gospel in different places, and even occasionally after preaching it at home, I've been confronted with this passage of Scripture by someone who is put off by the truth of the pure, sovereign grace of God in the salvation of sinners. The fact is, one cannot preach grace without on occasion being charged with antinomianism. It's an impossibility. If you preach grace, somebody's going to call you an antinomian. I'm always amazed that a person can think this one verse is the standard for all others when just the opposite is true. Several years ago, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, before Pastor Daniel Parks took over as pastor of that church, at Redeemer Baptist Church. There was another fellow there that had invited myself, Donnie Bell, Don Fortner, and Todd Nybert to preach up there. And he'd also invited some preachers from a very legalistic church up in New Jersey. And they'd come down too. Well, we didn't know anything about these other guys. But they had already been told about us. Because the preacher who was there at the time was going to be leave being a Baptist pastor and was going to be ordained a Presbyterian pastor and he gave this Bible conference to see how many how he could split the church and how many he could take with him and how many he could leave behind. Now, that's what was going on. We didn't know any of this stuff. We didn't know any of this stuff. 
Well, after I'd preached and Brother Donnie and Don had preached, this fellow got up. I can't remember his name. He was from Owensboro, Kentucky. I probably could remember his name, but I don't want to remember his name. (laughs) And this preacher got up and compared the life of a Christian to walking a tightrope. You see, he said a tightrope walker needs a rope. And he also needs a long pole for balance. So this preacher said the balance pole was righteousness. He went on further to say that on one end was the righteousness of Christ. And on the other end was our personal righteousness. I was angry. Don Fortner was sitting behind me with Shelby. And she saw that my ears were turning red and my neck was turning red. And I was just sitting there gritting my teeth. And she leaned up and touched me on the shoulder and said, You want some gum? (laughs) And I said, Do you have a gun? That man, in his sad, flawed, ersatz logic, which was born of the delusions of mediocrity, implied that if our personal righteousness was not equal to that of Christ, that we would be out of balance and fall off the wire and suffer loss. Now, after he had finished his gospel according to the Cirque du Soleil, He ended his tirade with a challenge to anyone who would presume to disagree with him by de-double-daring them to preach a message from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. He firmly believed that this verse supported his carnival hawker, freak show definition of balanced righteousness before God. He could not account for the fact that the believer is decidedly unbalanced. We go all the way one way. We just fall clean. We don't, we don't, we're unbalanced. Brother, that was a very unbalanced message. You don't have a balanced ministry. You have an unbalanced ministry, as every man who stands and preaches the gospel is. And the believer simply cannot abide two of anything. We can't. Concerning salvation, one way, one truth, one life, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God overall. Singular, and therefore easily understood. You got two things, you'll be confused. Nobody's confused about one thing. How can you be? Think about it. If it's just one thing, what can you be confused about? Now, you might like, not like the one thing, but you're not confused about it. After our brother just preached, you'll go out here tonight. And if you don't believe him, I'll know this, you'll know what you don't believe. Because he made it clear. That our only hope was the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's just clear as a bell. It's just one thing. Well, preacher, can't you tell us something else? I just got one thing. Like the old fellow had one string on his guitar. He just plucked it and plucked it. The fellow says, ain't you got no other strings? He says, oh, I, I found the note I've been looking for and I'm just going to keep on playing. This fellow who made this statement about the balance pole, his error as well as all errors of legalism, is to divorce a spiritual admonition such as this one found here in this passage from Christ and lay it at the door of human responsibility or human capability or human merit. And since all the Word of God is about Jesus Christ, He said to the finest religious people on the earth, though lost as geese in a snowstorm, He said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life, but they are they which testify of Me, and you will not come to Me that you might have life. You'll go everywhere but to the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. It's that simple. When we read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, it's about Jesus Christ. When he talks about perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all things that we are admonished to do in Scripture are based upon and centered in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told to uh, forgive others. How? On what basis? From what place? As Christ has forgiven us. We're told to love others as Christ has loved us. We are commanded to give because God has freely given us all things in Christ and withheld nothing from us. We are commanded to pray without ceasing because Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. It's all about Him and nothing else. Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22 is all about Him. This is His book. It's His story. It's all about Him. Now, in this context, the translators started a new chapter with verse 1 of chapter 7. Perhaps they did so to connect it with the verse that follows. Verse 2 says, Receive us, we have wronged no man, we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. People like to say things like that, and Paul was telling the truth. Receive us because we've not done that. And I suppose they attached verse 1 to verse 2 because it sounds like that's where it ought to be. That's not where it ought to be. That's not where it ought to be. It's not about verse 2. It's not about verse 2. These are gospel imperatives that every believer is to follow. We are to not defraud men. We're always to be honest and upright and, uh, and uh, not to corrupt men. Those are gospel imperatives. Read Romans chapter 13. Paul gives us several things that we are to do. To owe men nothing but to love one another. For in this is the fulfilling of the law and so forth. These are gospel imperatives. But character and conduct, they do matter. They just don't count. <laughs> Did you hear that? Character and conduct do matter. They just don't count because character and conduct flow from a revelation of an understanding and appreciation of how our Lord has graciously dealt with us. We love Him because He first loved us. We love each other because He loved us. That's why we do it. There's no other reason for it. 
The first two words of verse 7 connected to the previous verses. Having therefore. Now that's just, you don't throw things in like that unless they connect to something else. Having therefore these promises. These words address the promises declared in the last few verses of chapter 6. They say, verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Those are precious promises. Having therefore these promises. And whatever the meaning of the remainder of this verse 1 of chapter 7 is inextricably married to, and that is without any possibility of divorce, it's inextricably married to, and is based on and centered in the fact that those who are spoken of and spoken to here and admonished and warned, they have something. All of that is based on, therefore, having, therefore, these problems. These folks have something. They ain't looking for something. They're not on a scavenger hunt for it. They don't have to eat the fish and spit out the bones to get it. They have it. Paul says, having, therefore, these promises. We got these. That's what he's, that's the basis for this. They possess it, and therefore they believe the aforementioned promises. They are not looking to gain or progress in any way, shape, or form concerning these promises. Why should they? They have them. They have them. Do you want these promises? No, I don't want them. I got them. Would you like to have them? No, I don't. I wouldn't like to have them. I have them. These are possessed promises. They are possessed promises. Every last cotton-picking one of them is possessed by the child of God. The word promise is throughout Scripture linked to Christ. It's always linked to Christ. And is understood and embraced by the gift of faith. All the promises of God are yea and they are amen in Christ to the glory of the Father by us. All of them. All promises of God are found and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ and nowhere else. We are called the children of promise. We are called the heirs of promise. You read about Isaac. Paul says in Galatians, as Isaac was, we are the children of promise. Just like Isaac was, this promise. It follows then that the remaining words of the admonition are not accomplished in the flesh but rather in the Spirit through believing the promise of God or believing Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 7 is actually the last verse of chapter 6. <laughs> actually the last verse of chapter 6. The last word of warning and promise that is contained in chapter 6 in verses 14 through 18. Now let's read them. Verse 14 says, "...be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers." And that's not just talking about marriage. I think it's a, you can make a real good application there. <laughs> but that's not what that's talking about. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion with light and darkness? Christ is righteousness, Christ is light. Everything else is unrighteousness and darkness. And what concord hath Christ with Belial or the devil? 
Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel or an unbeliever? Or what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. If God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's a promise of God. But you see what he's talking about here? This is important. Verse 7 is about that. It's about being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's about having fellowship, uh, or what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and so forth and so on. Our text has to do with and must be viewed in the light of this context unless we find ourselves sucked into the airless, vacuous black hole of legalism. Now, that's not hard for any of us because we are all legalists by nature. We are born legalists. I myself am a legalist in recovery. (laughs) That's what I am. It doesn't take much for me to become a legalist. I try to get myself out of fixes all the time, and you do too. Get yourself in a fix. What's the first thing you do? Try to figure out some way to get out of it. Well, I'm going to pray more. No, you ain't. I'm going to read my Bible more. No, you're not. But it sounds good and it feels right because we're legalists. That's what we are. We think we can undo our problem. We're the problem. (laughs) We can't undo it. Cleansing can never be attributed to the power of the will and the flesh. The very words of this passage declare that we are to cleanse ourselves from filthiness of the flesh. So how would we apply to the flesh to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh? To cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the Spirit. We are not admonished to go to the flesh to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of it. That's oxymoronic. It is. Cleansing is not a thing that we can do at all. Job said, if I plunge myself in snow water and make myself never so clean, God will throw me right back in the ditch and make me abhor the filthiness of my own covering. Malachi chapter 3 describes Christ as the one who sits as the purifier of the priesthood. The purifier, the fuller, the one who washes people. First John, John said, We walk in the light as He is in the light. We have fellowship with the Father and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Everywhere in Scripture that the children of God seek cleansing, they do so at one place. They seek it at the door of mercy. That's where they seek it. The fact that their cry is, cleanse me, and I'll be clean. Now, help me cleanse myself, or give me some soap, or give me a way to cleanse myself. Cleanse me! If you'll cleanse me, Lord, I will be clean. That means they know that cleansing is not something that is possible by their own power or their own ability. Cleansing was accomplished on Calvary. By the blood of the perfect substitute. And Paul declared this fact to this very church. Look over back at uh, chapter 6 and verse 11. Well, excuse me, First uh, Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. After he says that no drunkard or fornicator or idolater or adulterer or effeminate 
or abusers of themselves, or mankind, or thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, some of you were that way. Such were some of you. That doesn't mean all of you did all these things. It means all of you did some of these things. <laughs> but, you're washed. <laughs> you're washed. You're sanctified. And justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Paul says the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter 3 and verses 4 through 8, if you have time to look at it. What is being said here is that cleansing is spiritual. It's spiritual. The flesh is neither quickened nor renewed. It never is. And cannot be made anything other than what it is. Legalism's desire is to make Adam look better. Smell better. Do better. That's religion's desire. To make Adam better. But let me tell you, Adam ain't getting no better. You can put a bow on a pig, it's still a pig. It's still a pig. A snake sheds his skin once a year, but he's still a snake. He's still a snake. Flesh is flesh and always will be flesh, and thus it's carnal, sensual, earthly-minded. Ever minding the things below and never the things above. Why did Paul groan in the Spirit after what he said in Romans chapter 7 and verses 14 through 24? Why did he groan to be released from the influence and death of the flesh? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he just simply said, I thank God for Jesus Christ. He didn't give a great theological thing, did he? He didn't enter into a theological, I'll tell you who's going to deliver me. Let's go back to eternity. And let's start here. Let's move all the way up. I thank God through Jesus Christ. And my dilemma is will be the same until the day I die. Therefore, with my mind, with my desire, I will serve the Word, the law of God. But with my flesh, I will serve the law of sin. And that's what it means to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. To know through the Gospel that with your mind, your inner man, you serve God. Yeah, that's what you want. That's what you desire. But with your flesh, you'll always serve sin and death. Say, what a dilemma. For us, not for God. He fixed it. So what He sees in His children is perfection. Experimentally, experientially, they see nothing in themselves. But he sees his son in them. He sees his son. The flesh is neither quickened nor renewed. We need to always remember that. To apply to the flesh for perfection of holiness is this twisted kind of necrophilia. It's, it's utterly absurd as going to the graveyard to find life. This admonition has to do with the spiritual. Having our minds stayed upon God by His grace. The Bible does say, Mortify your members which are upon the earth. The Bible does say, Mortify your deeds, the deeds of the flesh. 
But there's only one way that our members which are upon the earth can ever be mortified. This mortification is certainly not within the purview of our aptitude. Why? Because they're upon the earth. (laughs) We're upon the earth. They're down here. So we can't do nothing about it. This mortification... Our Lord said, set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. You see, there's an above and below in this situation. Our members on earth cannot mortify themselves. That's the flesh. One does not apply to the disease, embrace the disease, revisit the disease, or come reinfected with the disease in order to cure the disease. We are cleansed one way. And this will make no sense to you unless you know Christ. We are cleansed one way. The deeds of the flesh are mortified one way. Our members upon the earth are mortified one way. Only one. Are you ready? Look to Christ. That's it. Fix your eyes upon Him. That's the only way. The old hymn says of this wonderful, singular manner, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim. They won't disappear, but they will get dim. And this is it in a nutshell. It's the answer. The believer looks to Christ for the appearing of Christ. The believer will be looking for Him because the believer has set his affection on Him and not on things of the earth. With affection on things above, the natural consequence is that the things of the earth are not attended to. It's not that you say, Oh, I'm doing bad. I'm going to look at the bad things I do. Why do you want to do that? What good is it going to do? Well, I've been doing this. I've got to stop doing this. Stop looking yonder. That's your problem. Look to the remedy. (laughs) It's so simple and yet impossible apart from a work of grace. Set your affection on things above and the things of earth will not be attended to. Mind the things of the Spirit and not the things of the flesh. The principle of one's inability to serve two masters here applies. The members that are on the earth are mortified by looking for the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. Look only to Christ. And religion ever about making the old man better and applying to the flesh to do so will never be able to grasp that mortification of our members on the earth is accomplished with a look. But it is. Promise suggests hope. And we do not hope in our flesh. We do not hope in anything that we can see. You're looking horizontal. You ain't never going to have no peace in this world. Not a lick. Not a lick. A hope that is seen is no hope. Well, I believe you've got to have some evidence of salvation. Why won't, we show, won't you show me yours? Huh? What's your evidence? Well, I pray So does billions of people upon the face of the earth. Well, I love. Do you really? How well do you do that? Do you do it perfectly? Well, I'm afraid then it's unacceptable. 
Well, I go to church. Everybody goes to church. At least twice a year. What are you going to show? Do you know there's only one evidence of salvation in Scripture? Faith. Is the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. Hope for, not seen. We can't even prove we have faith. Would you like to me would you like to prove me to me that you have faith? You can't. I can't prove to you I have it. In fact, you, I can't know you have it and you can't know I have it. Only I can know I have it and only you can know you have it. It can't be proven. That's the beauty and the glory and the wonder of this thing is that the world sees this as utterly stupid and foolish. How? Why come you say you're a believer? Well, because I believe. How can you say you're a Christian? Because I believe. That don't make it so. It does if God gives the faith. The only way the flesh is ever subdued is looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it's unlikely, and it's as wonderful as it is unlikely. It is subdued. The flesh is subdued only one way. It's starved for affection. The only way it's subdued. It's not subdued by the flesh. It's subdued by not paying attention to it. And the only way it's not being paid attention to is to look to Christ. You know, you know this as children of God. When is your joy and peace complete? When you, when you see Him. When does everything fall apart? When you take your eyes off of Him. That's our life. With our mind we serve the law of God. With our flesh we serve the law of sin and death. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Now notice those two things. He's not just the author of it. He finishes it. That's because He controls everything in between the authoring of it and the finishing of it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, disregarding, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the Father. Holiness. That's one of those words that preachers like to talk about. Holiness. Sometimes we can't even say it without lowering our voices a few octaves so we'll sound somehow holy. Holiness. Well, let me tell you something about holiness. It is never attributed to the power and the will of the flesh. Never. Holiness is the work of God. And as our brother just read in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is Jesus Christ. He is our sanctification. What holiness have we but Jesus Christ? A very holy man once said, Our righteousness is as filthy menstruous rags. And he used that language, that terminology, which is, makes especially most American people feel kind of uneasy when people talk like that. But he used that because a woman's menses, when she had her menses, she had to go outside the camp. She couldn't come back in until an offering was made for her, and she was atoned for, and she was accounted as cursed. That's why women call that time of their life the curse. They call it that because it's a biblical term. 
She couldn't come back into camp camp unless an animal was slain and blood was shed. And Isaiah said, I'm going to hand you that which is accursed and must be atoned for as my righteousness. Well, if you know anything about your righteousness, you know it must be propitiated. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Christ is our righteousness. What does that mean? Just exactly what it says. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, The Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16 says, This is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. This is the name by which he shall be called. This is the name which by which she shall be called. We've taken his name, evidently. We must be married to him, don't you reckon? The Lord our righteousness. Christ is our holiness. God has made Him to be unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Holiness is a state of being. The only time you find the word holier in Scripture is a smoke in God's nose. The only time you find the word holiest is speaking of that inner place, that 15 by 15 foot cubicle where God met with one man one time a year over a bloody altar called the Ark of the Covenant. Holiness is a state of being. Be ye holy. Not act holy. Or try to act holy. But be. It's a state of being. And let me tell you something here tonight. You're sitting here and I know what you know about yourself. Because I know that about myself. But you, right now, at eight minutes to nine, in the month of July in Almont, Michigan are as holy as you will ever be. You're as holy as you will ever be. You and I are not going to gain anything when we get to glory that we don't already have. We're just going to leave some things behind, thank God. This flesh, this carnality, this wicked heart. I'm going to leave that in the grave and let it rot and let the worms have it. Christ is our perfection. Our brother quoted this also. In Him dwell the fullness of the God is ahead bodily, and ye are complete in Him. You don't lack anything. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Fearing God is also the work of God. Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will put my fear in their hearts. They will not depart from me. Fearing God. That's what this talks about. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Fear of God for the believer means reverence for His holiness and His perfection. Fear of God has to do with worship and love and honor for God. And I know that those who hold that our text is a treatise on progressive sanctification play the fear card as it refers to punishment or loss. They always do that. You mean if you mess up, God's not going to punish you? That's exactly what I mean. He's already punished me in my substitute. Now, He may chastise me, but that ain't punishment. 
That's loving correction. And I need it. And so do you. But He'll never punish His children. God's not mad at you. God's not waiting around the corner to thump you on the head. God is not Don Corleone. God's got a smile for you. The holy, infinite, the thrice holy God commands you. Come into my house. Tell me what you need. Doesn't he? Boldly approach the throne of grace to get mercy for your time and need. Boldly. Come into my house. God always has a smile for His people. He's not mad at you. What if I fell up? What if? When? Men who believe in that sort of notion that God will punish His people, they themselves openly and usually with a frowning face because they're the sourest bunch of people in the world, avow that they will never attain perfection, so they live in a constant slavish fear of the wrath of God falling on them. They speak of His sovereignty, but believe Him kind of impish, lurking behind every corner and waiting to thump them for the wrongdoings, or because they're slack in their rectitude. But the believer operates from an entirely different position, you see. We have the promises. We have them. They're ours. God dwells in Him by His Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ. And the believer does not anything to gain anything. He does not do anything out of fear of loss or gain of station. He does what He does out of reverence and thanksgiving and praise for what has been accomplished for Him. The believer does what he does not to be righteous or to be holy. He does what he does because he is righteous and he is holy. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord then plainly is believing the promises of God by faith in Christ. There's no doubt that that's connected. That's what it means. Having said that, let's look again at our text quickly. The admonition is to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. The word filthiness is an interesting little word. It means an action by which anything is defiled. Or doing something that defiles you. And we know from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 7 that that's not where defilement comes from outside of us. It comes from inside of us. But there's no contradiction here. This defilement or filthiness comes from a root word that means to pollute or stain. A thing is stained or polluted by coming in contact with something of a staining and a polluting nature. In this case, something religiously icky or nasty. This mangy filthiness that is spoken of here has to do with contact or proximity or association with something corrupt and polluted. 
Clearly this filth of this is in opposition to the promises in Christ and to the Christ of the promises. Such language is not foreign to Scripture. Our Lord spoke that way. When His disciples said, Don't you know you've offended those really holy fellows? He said, They're blind. And watch those people they're leading. They're all going to end up in the ditch. Leave them alone. <laughs> Leave them alone. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't have anything to do with them. Paul said to the Galatian church, I marvel that you're so moved from Christ to another gospel, which is really not another, but it's a corruption or a pollution of the gospel. A pollution. The believer is not stained by association with Christ. He's stained by association with something else. Is he stained by, is he stained by association with sinners? No. Paul, when he talked about that brother who was having an affair with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he spoke of that man, but he said, you're not supposed to have fellowship with adulterers. And then he quickly caught himself and said, but not all adulterers, because then you just have to go live outside the world. You'd have to go be a monk or something. He said, not have association or fellowship with one of the brethren who is committing adultery but not of the whole world. We live among sinners. We are sinners. We have a message for sinners because we were sinners who heard a message. One beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. That's what we are. We're sinners. We are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. And our Lord set the example for associations, being the friend of publicans and sinners. He was their friend. He's the friend of this sinner. He's my best friend. On earth, I say that about Jim. We've been together for since 1970-something, way back when. We never had a fight. I can't even say that about my wife. Never had a fight. I can say on earth, he's my best friend. But he's really not. My best friend is my Savior. He's my friend. My real friend. And we're to be friends of publicans and sinners. Legalists can't do that. They just can't. No, we can't be there. Don't go near that guy. He's a bad influence. Everybody's a bad influence. But the fact is, we'll probably be a bad influence on him. Remember that when the Lord said of that guy who's carrying that offering in that apron? He says, if, if you touch somebody and you carry something unclean in your apron, will they become unclean? And he said, yeah. He says, you're right. He said, well, what if you carried something clean and you touch them? Will that make them clean? No, it won't. We probably don't have that much good influence on anybody. But the message we preach does. The message we preach does. The epistle to Galatians and Colossians were written in warning against the very thing that we have examples of. That stain. That stain, that pollution. We see that in the act of Peter, James, and Barnabas said, Antioch, they, they got stained. They got polluted. How'd they do that? They left, they changed tables at a church social. That's what they did. Didn't seem like much of a thing. There were these fellows that came down from Jerusalem, and they said, all you gotta do is tell these Gentiles who only believe Christ, <coughs> if they'll, be circumcised. If they'll keep the law, everything will be okay. We'll get along just fine. 
And they kept harping on it. And these were religious people. And these Gentiles, they wasn't much as over the table as eating pork chops. <laughs> they was, you know, they didn't care. They were just happy because God had saved them by their grace. And they were free. They were at liberty. And they was happy. And these Jews come up and said, you can't be happy. That ain't right. You've got to be sad like us. So we're going to circumcise you. We're going to cause you some pain, bud. <laughs> and Peter stood there and listened to that for a while, and then he started sort of just uh, sat down with them Judaizers. What Paul said, you despise the grace of God. Peter, you despise the grace of God. He didn't say you formed another opinion and we accept you on that basis. He said you mock the gospel and you despise the grace of God because if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. It's no small thing here. We are to cleanse ourselves from that which would pollute us or spot our garment. This cleansing has to do with the flesh and the spirit. It says, filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. And this does not refer to the old man and the new man, or the spirit and the flesh that are always contrary to one another, or the war that goes on in our members to bring us, uh, to bring every consideration to the obedience of Christ. This is quite simply, since it has to do with this filthy contact, our body and our mind. We are to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of our bodies and our minds by keeping ourselves from that which would rub off on us and contaminate us. That's what this is talking about. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, wholly acceptable and a reasonable thing. We are to present our members as instruments of righteousness and mind not the things of the flesh and look not at things on the earth but things that are in heaven. And this Paul declares is perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. This word perfecting settles it all. It means separate. Perfecting means, actually holiness means to, uh, to separate. Perfecting means to finish or to bring to an end. And the word holiness finds itself in separation. So he's saying this matter of separation... Let's get it over with. <laughs> Let's get it final. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. Separation from what? Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath the believer with the infidel? What agreement the temple of God with idols? With idols. In order to perfect holiness, we have to do what just what our brother said, to reject the holiness that anybody espouses that is other than Jesus Christ. That's perfecting holiness. Get it over with. That's what Paul is saying. Let's get it over with. 
We are not to be yoke fellows with those who believe there is a righteousness other than Christ or fellowship or have communion with them or be in concord or agree with them. We don't separate from them by paying attention to them either. Paul would not give them an hour of his time in Galatia. Wouldn't he? he said, I wouldn't give them an hour of my time. We separate from them by separation unto something else. Remember the principle. Things above, not the things of the earth. So we separate from them that despise the gospel of grace by being separated unto something else. Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. And I'll quit. Just hang on for a second or two. I'm sorry I've taken so long. Romans chapter 1 and verse 6. No, Paul a servant verse one, excuse me. Romans chapter one and verse one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. What does that mean? The gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You're separated under that. You're not going to have to worry about this other stuff. We was riding by the pickle factory today. Glorying in these wonderful pickles that were going up and down those slides and and their future to become Vlasic pickles, these cucumbers. And there on that same road, I think it was, we ran across a church with a sign on it. An amazing sign. You know, churches have signs. There's a good one out here. Sovereign Grace Conference. This church was different. This sign was different. Here's what this sign says. It was of the, at the church of the scared of the heat. No, Sacred Heart. Excuse me. The Church of the Sacred Heart. This is what it said. The knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by Mary's obedience. I've only got two words to say about that. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. Your obedience, my obedience, changes nothing. We separate to the gospel, and everything else just simply doesn't matter. That is perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Thank you. Let's uh, thank you, Tim, for that excellent message. Number 17 in the red folder. I think uh, this would be a good one to close the service with tonight. Number 17, complete in thee. Let's stand and sing.